Welcome to Blue State Conversations. This is our place to discuss the political theory from all sides, bridging the political divides that split our society. Good morning, everybody. It is a good morning, Sunday morning, as Nancy Pelosi would say. Today, I am going to be by myself. It is Matthew. Will is not going to be able to join us. He had some obligations in his personal life that he needed to attend to. And we thought today would be a perfect time for reducing us down to just one half because we have a couple of guests that are joining us for our show today. So before I introduce them, though, I'm going to read our opening problem. So our children's future is all but determined by their school district. Parents will change location and entire careers to secure a top school. A California couple actually went through the legal process of divorce so the mother could move with the son to a school in Georgia for a coveted football scholarship. Given all this, why does the typical view of schools in America trend negative? Some studies rank schools here highly. Others paint a dismal picture. Funding is a major concern, but is the money already allocated being spent wisely? Homeschooling and public schools appear to be locked in battle with the public schools, curriculum, and values as the front lines. That brings us to today's question of the show, which is, what is the goal of education? And here to help answer that, we have two guests, both of them teachers. We have Lauren, who has a bachelor's degree in math. She's a certified teacher, currently in her fifth year of teaching. She grew up in Pennsylvania and taught at suburban and rural public schools in Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Idaho. And she currently teaches ninth and 10th grade in mathematics. How's it going, Lauren? It's going great. Thanks for having me today. Oh, of course. And then for our second guest, we have Donald, who has a bachelor's in business administration, a bachelor's in mathematics, a master's degree in secondary ed, has been a teacher for 26 years, He's a basketball coach. He has worked with legendary Dave Cowens from the Boston Celtics, He's a father of six, and he currently teaches ninth, 10th, and 12th grade in mathematics. How's it going today, Donald? Good morning. So, I guess the very first thing I wanted to ask you guys, just right off the bat, what are the metric schools used to determine a good student? So, Lauren, in your experience, what are students being expected to do in order to be called good or succeeding? That's a good question. So, I would definitely say that schools expect students to show up to class with, you know, the materials expected for each class be able to, you know, sit down, think about the problems that the teacher kind of presents or be able to work on the assignments that the teacher assigns and be willing to either work individually or in a group depending on the problem or the assignment. And I definitely think that schools have been moving more towards thinking critically about problems rather than just being able to memorize facts. And then another expectation is that they are going to work on schoolwork outside of school normally with homework or other things like that. So that would be what I would say academically is what we expect. But behaviorally, we're thinking that normally, you know, if one person's talking, they're listening and really thinking about what that person's saying and, you know, not just shouting things out or obviously, you know, throwing things across the room and whatnot. But yeah, normally a good student is is somebody who is going to walk in, be respectful of everybody else in the room, and really engage in the topics that are being discussed in class, and then leaves school, goes home, and works on some of those ideas at home as well. So that's what I would say a school expects from a student. 
So, Donald, is that sort of the same thing for you? Because I know you guys are in different states, so different school systems. Is that kind of what your experience is and what schools are saying a good student should be and what they determine a good student is? I'm not saying that it would be labeled a good student, but a student. I concur wholeheartedly with what was presented by Lauren. I'd probably put also that the school expects the teaching staff or the faculty to meet the needs of the kids instead of setting a standard that the kids would need to reach. So there's a lot of new teaching vocabulary, a lot of vernacular like scaffolding and dipsticking and you know, there's a lot of things to meet the needs of students. So the student that comes, definitely attendance is huge. They expect the kids to like the school. So they want to be the school and faculty to be likable. And they want the kids to enjoy the experience to such an extent that this would motivate them to become a student. The level of good or bad would be the level of ability or gifts that they bring into the school. So... It doesn't matter what level you're at in school, you would be asked to give your best effort and then somehow through a teaching technique or a teaching level or being in a right group setting, something that the students would somehow pick up information that would make them a better student instead of a good student. So I guess the question I would have is what is scaffolding? Like, can you give a short overview of what that would be? Yeah, I think if you take just a basic lesson plan that incorporated in it would be, you would use these words at this point, but there would be different levels. So now that you would not have what they call tracking in schools, at least in our school, there's no tracking. Kids can just be mixed in. So you could have like a high IQ with low IQ kids in the same class. And the teacher would scaffold the material so that the material is presented to that level during the class. It could be, you know, just as Lauren had mentioned, in groups, different worksheets, different assignment levels, but it's the presentation of the material as such that each level is given to the material in a way that they can digest it. So if you had your students in groups, you could present to one a different level of mathematics than another group in terms of, like, difficulty? You could present it that way... I'd say that you might mix the groups so that the high-level kids kind of teach the low-level kids would be another way of kind of doing it in small group discussions where kids that pick up the material quicker can help the more reflective student. But I think as far as my experience with other teachers that I've talked to is it's really is two lesson plans or three lesson plans or four lesson plans for the same class. I know people who scaffold and it is an effective tool, but I do not think it's more effective than tracking a student okay. or, you know, putting groups together that are about the same intelligent and then challenging that group and having the kids work together. I think most of the time the, the smart kids feel like they don't have to do as much work they're not as challenged as much. That could just be my, you know, my lack of teaching, but that's just my experience says that the fact that the leveling in one class has such a range that sometimes the presentation gets to the point where the higher IQ kids are not challenged. Okay, Lauren, go ahead. So my understanding of scaffolding as just like a really simple concept is basically this idea of Taking what the student already knows, so like let's say they already know how to add numbers together, and using that idea 
to bridge from adding numbers to now maybe today you want to teach them how to multiply numbers. So taking this concept of adding numbers together and bridging it. So like this is not something I necessarily teach in my class, but using this idea of, well, if you add numbers a bunch of times, like if you add four three times, then that's the same thing as four times three. So scaffolding is this idea of taking their current knowledge and being able to move them in a very gradual way to something that they don't already understand. Basically like up a level, like a scaffold. Right. That's where the name yes. comes from. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah. the, I guess the question would be, anybody hearing this would be, so is standardized testing even useful anymore? If these are the new ways to teach, you know, having all these kids go into Rome and take the same test. So Lauren, do you think that standardized testing is still useful or do you think it's kind of lost its usefulness over the years? Well, that's definitely a loaded question, right? Because (laughs) so I'll tell you my opinion and then I'll tell you some of the things that are going on behind the scenes. My opinion is that I think standardized testing is definitely not as useful as it was meant to be. And the ideas behind it were good. But yeah, I think we need to think of something new or different or try something different. So the idea behind standardized testing is that, you know, we realized that depending on even in one school itself, you know, one fourth grade teacher is teaching completely different topics from another fourth grade teacher, right? And so the idea is that, okay, every fourth grader should know these things when they leave fourth grade and move on to fifth grade. And that helps, you know, just one school, but also districts and states and then the entire country to kind of be on the same page as to what a fourth grader should know when they leave fourth grade. And so in that sense, I don't necessarily disagree. The problem is that it has become so nitpicky and at the same time so vague that it's often times teachers aren't sure how best to teach the topics that are being expected and also what to do when a student comes to their fifth grade class who didn't get all of the stuff that they were supposed to get in fourth grade. And yeah, and I would add to that idea of, so what Donald was talking about in my vernacular, it's said a lot is differentiated instruction. So Mm -hmm. differentiating your instruction for the students meeting their needs based on what they bring to the table is really challenging. Then obviously if you have 20 to 30 students who are coming to the table with very different experiences and knowledge to make sure that they all know the same thing at the end. So, 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 so yeah. basically the differentiated, we want the students to kind of know all the same things coming into their new class, because if you have to spend time figuring out what they know and don't know, that sort of takes away from what they could be learning. Yes. Okay. So in that case, what sort of testing in a few seconds what sort of testing would be effective in determining what they do and do not know? Is standardized testing that, or is there a different type of testing that maybe you've heard of that would be useful? I mean, I would say one thing would be, I don't have a problem with standards necessarily. Like I kind of said, I I like the idea of, you know, everybody understanding the same thing when they leave fourth grade or whatever. But I would say maybe something that would be more effective would be sort of a pre-post-test type of thing where you could say, okay, here's what they understood before learning it, and here's what they understood afterwards, and being able to see that growth for each student. So, yeah, Donald, is that a system that 
used to be used or has it always just been sort of standardized testing is the answer? Well, again, we use like the state test is kind of the the standardized test. It's not an outside agency. It's the state itself is doing the test. And so they're setting the curriculum. They're setting the guidelines for each student within the state. So I would say in a high higher income towns, there's no problems with standardized tests. I would say the honors kids or the AP kids are not stumbling over standardized tests. So if you say the top 10%, I would say probably would rank not only with you know, my school and, and the top schools around the area, but they'd probably also rank nationally. So standardized tests are, you know, from my point of view, just show uh, what subjects that you're strong in, what subjects that you're weaker in, or maybe focus in on more. We've had a word called verticality for a long time, and I don't think in my 26 years we've ever got it to work. So in math, we're very sequential, you know, and I know that Elementary schools are loaded up with reading specialists, but there's never a math specialist in the elementary grades. I'd also say that uh, most elementary school teachers are teaching the elementary schools because they don't want to take math. So those two elements kind of indicate that most of the kids probably come in as a stronger reader. So I'm coming from this one subject, math. And, uh, you know, it's, it's important that you add before you multiply and add before you subtract and all that. So those things are important to us. So knowing where their weaknesses are, on a standardized test could help us set our agenda with limited funding, limited staff, you know, putting the most teachers where the most kids are and where the need is. So standardized tests have a value, but again, aggregate data read by an administrator who's never taught in a classroom or superintendent that's more important is probably more pursuant of like, uh, I want my school to be level one or level, you know, a higher level than it is trying to keep the budget at a certain level makes things very chaotic. And I agree with Lauren that the standardized test is useful, but in whose hands and for what purpose always has to be asked. It used to be that the local towns were in control. The PTA had more of a voice of their kids learning and reading, writing, and arithmetic were the basics. And and that's what you went to school for. Now school is more branched out. They actually have federal lunch programs. We feed them. We pick them up at their homes. They have federal protections and they have state protections as far as like 504 plans and IEP plans. So there's a lot going on here where standardized tests cannot be used because we have such a wide variety of kids coming in with so many different needs. And a standardized test is to say all these kids were taught the same way in the same classroom with the same instructor with the same goal. And right now it seems like we're meeting the needs of the many. And standardized tests, I don't think, would cover such a multitude of needs that the students present, even in a small school, because the staff would shrink down to that size. So you're always into that, Lauren had mentioned, 20 to 30 kids, and each with a different need, and now you have a standardized test, and you have to show that these kids understand it. That's a difficult task for any teacher or any administration to pull off. So I guess the next question that would come from somebody who doesn't live in the education world would just be, what is the point of grading? What are you trying to accomplish when you grade a student? Because we, we have a whole bunch of new approaches that are around the country. One of the more wild ones that I read recently is they were going to be splitting it based on the student's income level. And then there is a college that does not grade. It only does pass-fail. So in your view, very quickly, you know, I'll start with you, Donald. What do you think the point of grading is? Well, from the administrative side, grading is 
a way of assessing a group in a timely fashion. You know, if I do have somewhere between 80 to 100 students, sometimes over 100 students, and in 10 weeks try to grade them and get to know them, I think grading is just a quick way of reporting back to the kid how they're doing with the material. That is the point of grading. As far as how it's used now, we have a system where, you know, in the COVID-19 just recently, the lowest grade I could give was a 60. So the student actually would get a D minus. So the point of grading is just to assign a number to where a student is at. And sometimes that's the only thing that is relational in the classroom is that, you know, if the student thinks they're 65, then they, they don't see a need to participate that often or learn that much. So the point as far as the grade is, as long as the kid is passing, they feel like that's good enough. Some students that want to get onto a nice college use it as a way of getting to like a, a Harvard or a Princeton. So grades are just a quick way of showing the, the kids, the parents, the community, higher academics, where the student is in regards to the material. So Lauren, is, is that something you kind of agree with or do you think there's a, a different point of grading? And I know you came through the education system a little bit more recently. So it, right. is grading being taught kind of differently from that or is that still kind of the point presented to you? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's that much different. The way that I kind of think of it is in an ideal world, if humans were perfect, we wouldn't have to grade students because they would just want to learn, right? So I think of grading as me holding you responsible for your learning. Have you learned what you needed to learn? Usually my philosophy on grading is everything is formative until we get to the test. So you have tons and tons of tons and tons of opportunities to ask questions and figure out things before we get to the test at the end of the unit. And that's when I'm like, okay, what did you learn? I see. So I guess, you know, we've talked a lot about just sort of what schools are expecting from their students and teachers. So the next kind of questions that I want to go over with you guys is sort of just focusing on teachers, what you guys are experiencing in your profession. So I guess the first question I would have is, you know, this is a huge thing is the teacher union, right? When you talk about the political aspect of things, when you talk about what parents are doing with their kids, you know, you have North Carolina, the parents are pulling their kids out of schools. You have the current battle with COVID-19. There's the Chicago teachers union. That's, you know, we had an interesting example in Broward County, Florida, where the teachers union argued that yes, their teachers are out going drinking and partying, but you can't make them take further risks by going back to the classroom. So there's a lot of opinions and some very strong opinions about teachers unions. So on one hand, what do you think unions should be doing? And then on the other hand, what do you think teachers unions are doing now? So I'll start with you, Lauren, there. Okay. In my opinion, the role of a teacher's union, just like any other union, is to make sure that teachers are being treated fairly and make sure that, you know, administrators and school districts are not kind of just like rolling right over the top of them and just taking advantage and taking teachers for granted. So that's what I would say unions are supposed to do. They're supposed to represent teachers and stand up for them. Yeah, I think that's a very common view of what unions should be doing at just a surface right. level. Do you find that the union is doing a lot of things besides that or is that primarily what they're doing? 
I would say they do a lot more than that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. For example, the union in my school district, they offer tons of professional development opportunities and, and other things like that that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise or you have to pay a lot of extra money in order to be a part of it if you're not a member of the union. So I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing, but I personally have not joined the union because I disagree with where the money goes once I've joined it. So that's why I've decided not to. And then in my experience, whether unions do that or not, they sometimes do. So my experience with the whole shutdown thing with, with COVID, this past, well, late summer, early fall, our district was deciding what to do as far as, you know, should we do hybrid? Should we do online? Should we do in-person? And I felt as though the school district was not taking COVID-19 seriously enough. And I was actually quite disappointed with how the union handled it. They kind of made a good show of like, we're going to stand up for teachers. And then they didn't really do anything. So would you feel that the union in that case was kind of not representing your opinion? And did they include you in when they were looking for opinions on what do we do? Did you feel included or that or did you feel a little shut out? I actually was included, which was surprising to me because I wasn't a, a member of the union. But I would say even the people who are members felt that they weren't represented well. So Donald, for yourself, I guess, is not joining a union something that would be an option <laughs> when you started teaching? Was that something that you could even think about? Yes. There's, I think there actually there's one major union that, you know, without competition, there's always a question as to the goals of a union that has complete power over all the teachers. And then I think a second union came out, and then you have the option of not being in the union technically. But of course, I would say Lauren's opinion would be needed because any union is as only as strong as the number of teachers that are able to back it up. So there is no union that can walk into an office and get something without all the teachers backing that decision. And that seems to be an issue today that there's a lack of interest in in what's going on as far as the administration of the town level. And so unions are very important. I'm not a union person myself, but I do join, I do pay my dues, I do go to the meetings. And I, I feel that it is a professional way of handling my contract because I feel in some cases, if I didn't belong to a union, I would be subcontracting. I'm just giving my gifts for that particular, you know, I'm teaching, I go in and teach a math, just like a plumber comes into your house, does a job and leaves. And that's why I'm saying, I think Lauren's opinions are vital, whether she pays the dues or signs on the dotted line or votes for the president or the secretary at the end of the year or whatever the cycle is in that particular district. So to get the opinions of most teachers, we collectively have to do something. We'd have to meet somehow on our own time and present to the principal and to the superintendent, to the town, the needs of the teachers, not just math teachers, uh, but all teachers. So somehow we need a voice and that voice has to be somehow chosen by those in there, that particular school, that particular building. I do believe that the state has a representative at the state level, and then there's a representative in the national. For those two, I would not spend my time reading a paragraph of anything they put out. I do not agree with the national or state unions, and I feel that they do not protect legally teachers. 
So you would say that the more local union does a better job of representing teachers over the national. Yeah, because I'm I'm in a school of uh, say 1,200. Uh, there is some teachers that I will not see all year because of my schedule, my duties. You know, so you you get located in a part of a building, and obviously there's middle school and and then what? There's uh, four elementaries, and so how am I going to connect with an elementary school teacher? And and that job is just as difficult. One group of kids for five hours. You know what I mean? And you right. have to teach multiple subjects. How are we going to get together and present our needs to a superintendent? Somehow we're going to be connected. And then that's what Lauren said. She said, I have an opinion. I'm glad they took it. Right. And that's an important issue that we have a voice somewhere, and it has to be a collective voice so that the administration will, will listen to what we need. Sure. So the next question I think would be, we, there's a lot of programs out there. There's, you have your common core, you have your no child left behind. You know, every state seems to have a program for education that's specific for, you know, some very glamorous title about how they're going to just improve their education. In general, do you find that common core, is that something that is being implemented in your school? And is that something that is helping or hurting from before, Donald? Well, I mean, my personal belief is that the fundamental problem is that we do not have a God approach, a biblical view. And because of this, we have programs, and I guess the only example I can think of is kind of the, the dike, that if we see a hole over there, we go over and plug it. That's a good thing. We stop the leak. It doesn't mean it's not hurting in the sense that it is still structurally a dike that will give way to the pressure somewhere else. So I don't see it as helping or hurting. I see it as fundamentally that, you know, the people that care most about the child's education are the parents. And I believe fundamentally, if they don't have a relationship with God, then they're still interested most. And I think expectation is probably a key to any successful learning. If you expect the kid to succeed, they will. The school systems are fading away from that with programs and language and courses that are so different than I remember growing up. And I think some of it is helping because it meets obviously a need that's there. I don't do the surveys. I don't just recently the poor not having like access to computers and we're doing remote. I mean, they raise enough right. money to get computers for the poor. That's a good thing. Do I think remote learning is a great tool? Yes, is it the best way to learn? No. But again, I go back to the fundamentals. I have a child and you want them to learn and you're with them through the education process, then you have a better chance of that student succeeding in any subject, not just the ones that they're gifted in, but in every subject. And I think schools have split from the parents and split from the community and they're directly run by the state so that all schools are run kind of in the same fashion as... So basically you're saying that because the school is separated from the parent, it started to remove what the kid may actually be needing because it's just a blanket approach from the state. Yes, and I'm not sure that schools are separating from the parents. I just think their effort to correct things does not include a community approach where the most important people are involved in a very real way. Okay, so Lauren, do you find that the parents are involved enough with their kids and is there any correlation between parents being involved and success of the student? 
Well, I would definitely say it depends on the family. And normally, in my experience, what I've noticed is families that are more affluent tend to be more involved in their children's education than ones who are not. And that's just generally not necessarily, you know, always. And I would say that a parent's involvement is very important to a a child's education. Honestly, sometimes I feel like I'm fighting an uphill battle as their teacher and I really crave their parents' involvement, whether it's because of behavior or just because they're having trouble understanding something. I really crave that if their parent isn't very involved. And I would say there are definitely times when parents may get a little overzealous about things that maybe aren't as important. The helicopter parents, is that what we're talking about? (laughs) Yeah, but I would say overall, I would prefer parents to be too involved than not involved at all. So Donald, the number one thing a parent can do to help you out is what? Well, I believe communication would be the best step. I would say that when I first started, the parents would have to make the first step and contact the teacher. And that's how it used to be. Now with our administrative evaluation tools, we reach out to the parents as much as possible. So I would say communication would be the key to any successful relations, that that it is my guidance, my curriculum set up, but it's with that, me knowing what the kid is capable of, what their effort level is, how I can motivate them, that all comes into play with the parent. Again, if the parents are lawyers or doctors, there's an expectation from the student already that they're going to do everything, whether it's syllabus-driven or verbally given in class, they're going to cover the material and make sure that they get it done. So communication from parents in just whatever form it is, the communication is the key to just assisting you with the student. Well, that and I was getting into background and the nature and the culture of the family they come from, the neighborhood they come from, what they see, the need for education, all that blends into me relationally knowing the kid. And the relational aspect really helps as far as like motivating a kid to do a subject that they have no interest in. And that's usually a math class, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. So Lauren, what would be the number one thing you find a parent needs to work with you on for their student success? Well, I would definitely agree with Donald that communication is really, really important. The other thing that I would add to that is kind of some respect and trust. So sometimes I feel like, and this is not all the time, that parents don't trust me to know how to best teach their child or that, you know, they think they know how to do it best. And that may be valid because they know their student, but not fully valid because they didn't, you know, go to school in order to learn how to teach because, you know, being a student is not the same as teaching a class. So I would add some respect and trust there because I certainly respect the fact that they know that child better than anybody else. And so communication is key for getting that input of how to motivate them, like Donald said, and how to help them best, but definitely respecting the fact that like, hey, we're on the same team here and I've been equipped with tools that you haven't as far as being able to teach them well. And I do think that in some ways COVID has actually helped a lot with that because parents have realized while their students were at home learning that, hey, I cannot teach. I'm not a teacher. (laughs) And maybe 
realized that they had been taking teachers for granted. So that maybe that'll that'll help going forward. You might get a little bit of the respect back, hopefully, right? <laughs> hopefully, yes. <laughs> so I, I guess that translates a little bit into just a question about students now. We see a lot of the fact that it's a push for college. That high school is almost kind of just viewed as you go into high school to come out to a college. You know, there's a huge amount of push for college. I know, Donald, you were talking about the tuition of college. That's exploded. I mean, you've got the college debt problem in the country and everything like that. So is it something where college is definitely what we need to be pushing on these kids? Or is it something, maybe there's a little bit of a refocusing. What do you think in terms of high school, because both of you guys teach high school, what would you want students to be focusing on in high school instead of maybe college? Not that college is bad, but... What is something else you think they should be focusing on in high school as they learn under you guys? Well, a couple of things that are probably just to toss in this, let's call it a sauce because there's so much here with college. But I, I would say maturity is one thing that has changed over the years. And I would say today a senior has the maturity of an eighth grader. So with that in mind, I would think that I would be sending somebody to college that had a maturity level of a ninth grader to a institution of higher learning. That could be dangerous, in my opinion. I don't think we understand that when college came into being in the 60s that we were chasing Sputnik and the Russians and there were students living in tents and we felt like we needed to learn more. We needed to get out there and the best and the brightest were doing that. And then there seemed to be a different level of intention, a different level of like being able to meet a standard and go after it. College should just be an option for kids that are in high school. I believe work is downplayed that, you know, but finish your school, do this. I believe that if you can get a job and maintain a job, I believe that's more important. Although I do believe education is important to a free society and there's no way that we could run a republic without education. But at the same time, if I have to pay $60,000 a year for a four-year college and come out with a $30,000 job, just business sense-wise, that's a losing proposition. So I think higher learning should be out there. Maybe we could do a two-year state school course and then go to an institution that you can somehow you know, just pay for two years instead of four. There's a lot of things I, I believe. I also believe that plumbing and carpentry and Electronics are being pushed off to the side. Those should also be high school courses that we should give kids, you know, the home ec and the shop experience so that they can make good choices when they get out of high school. Maybe they want to work for two years, save money, and then decide to go to college. But right now, kids do not really need to make decisions. They're institutionalized in a way that they just go on from ninth to 10th grade. There's no keeping back. There's no... You know, if you're doing bad, you just, okay, I'm just bad at it. There's no attitude of self-reflection and what can I do to get better at like test taking or my math skills or what can I do in the summer to get better? These things are not pushed on children. And so I feel like they stay childlike longer. And then they're asked to then make a payment of like 60 to 80,000 a year for an institution that now you don't even have to take a math course in some majors. You don't have to take uh, physics or science courses if you don't want to. You can get around all that by taking, I don't know, logic or something else to fill the, the gap. So it seems to be somewhat of a trap in my nature where I first pushed college because I believed in it. And it seemed you got a better bang for the buck 
going to college and to get it done by 22 and have your whole future ahead of you and and have you know that learning instilled in you at, at early age, I, I thought was a fantastic opportunity in America. Now I think you might come out in debt and may never get out of debt unless you know Biden pushes through this bill. A lot of people will be saved by it, but it's going to cost a lot of taxpayers and why not forgive my mortgage debt, things of that nature. So there's a lot going on in that college question than that meets the eye. But I think right now, kids are not mature enough to meet the need at the college level. So Lauren, in terms of just maturity, do you see that as coming from a discipline standpoint? Maybe it's a social standpoint. We know we've had people argue they spend too much time online, so they're not developing skills they need to be in person. If you agree, actually, I should probably ask you that first. Do you agree that the kids do have a maturity issue? I would agree, yes. And I think it's possible that that Donald is speaking to my generation as well because I'm kind of a millennial. So yeah, I would agree. And I would say, I think it's more than one thing. I don't think you can narrow it down to one necessarily, but definitely there's been a culture shift, which I kind of spoke to. Well, I kind of was thinking about it before we started this, but this shift of whose responsibility it is to be the learner, to learn things. And there definitely has has been a shift, in my opinion, of the expectation is on the teacher to make sure the child learns, mm. whereas in the past, it was the expectation was that it was the student's responsibility. And of course, the teacher was there and, you know, equipped them with those tools, but it was the student's responsibility at the end of the day. And so I definitely think it has to do with that. And I'm not sure where that shift happened or why, and it could be due to the internet or something else. But and I would definitely like to add on to Donald's idea that I agree wholeheartedly that many of our students who decide to go to college shouldn't. They should focus on something that they, they really enjoy and, and maybe, you know, learn from a really good businessman and start their own business or, mm-hmm. yeah, become a plumber or a carpenter or something of that nature because, you know, we're ending up with all of these college graduates who can't get a job to support yeah, the debt that they have accrued. And I think that that's not fair to anybody really in that kind of a system. Do you think that in terms of, because we will often have people say, well, the kid needs to go to college to get a job because that's what expected today. But then you'll hear that on the flip side, somebody will say, well, the kid is supposed to know what he's getting himself into with the college debt. So the argument can kind of come down to who's supposed to know about this. And I, in terms of how I kind of view it, I'm wondering, are parents not informing the student of what they're going to be getting themselves into? And are they maybe pushing it on the kid because they're saying, well, you need to do this. And then the kid gets hit with a bill and he feels like nobody told me. So Mm. do you feel that, so I guess I'll start with Donald. Do you feel that the loan problem for the student is they're not understanding what that loan means or is it? they're expecting a greater return than they actually end up getting. I guess, which way do you think is it kind of going? Well, I agree with Lauren and the points you made. And I wasn't talking to any one generation per se, other than the fact that if you do not have a little bit of grit, higher education can be somewhat of a difficult time for 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds. My feeling is, is that, you know, as far as like, any school system. The business world does not expect us to create students that they can 
use or we're not networking with anyone. We're just presenting a curriculum and then the students leave. Our testing system in this state is based on the fact that in our capital, most kids at the senior level were testing at a sixth grade reading level, which would basically give them the front page of a newspaper as far as their highest level of reading. And this is a difficult thing to ascertain that this could happen in a major city in the U.S. with us landing the rover on Mars. So those two don't jive together. So my point being is, is that we are kind of funneling that there is a stream running and the kids just get in it. And the parents have a difficult time saying, yes, I want a junior to work before they went to college. I can't see many parents defending that argument today when I know at my school, 81% go on to college. There's probably another 7% to go into the military, another 3% to go to two-year schools. And then they don't talk about the other per se. They just say workforce. So they don't present the jobs as something that is meaningful. They just say it's a category over here. And then they push that, you know, we spend $45 million on you know, 1,200 students, and this is what we justify from that money, and they go through a litany of things and how much money was done in scholarships, and then they present the valedictorian, and then the class president speaks, and everything looks very, very rosy. And this just seems to be a stream that funnels a kid from kindergarten all the way through to a senior, and then you're expected to go to college now. And now colleges are teaching high school-level courses, as eligible one courses at the college level. So I'm not sure what we're doing, but we're not connecting with anything that seems to be in a real way helping a student mature. You could say it's discipline, maybe setting standards or the fact that, you know, geez, when I went in high school, there was a draft for the Vietnam War. So it's a different culture. It's a different time. It's hard for me to speak from that. I just know that when I sit at my desk and the kids come in, there's not a real grit in them to get this course, even though I'm bouncing up and down saying, you can do it, and if you can't, we can. And that attitude and expectation that I try to present with them just falls mainly on deaf ears because they're just, you know, I'm here from this time to that, you teach math, I sit here. And that doesn't play well in an education setting where maybe you want kids in a high school, it's not a higher level learning, but it's high learning, that you know, if you are in a calculus course in high school, that you need to talk to other kids <laughs> about that subject. I would say from Algebra 2 on, that if you're not talking about the subjects, then you're learning a few formulas, you have a high IQ, you can figure things out. But if you're able to sit there and talk to a kid about the concepts presented, you will learn so much more that your experience will bring you to a higher level. College would be a place I'd recommend for that type of student. And there's still those types of students in school, and there's a maturity on different levels. So kids come from some tough families. They emotionally have uh, difficult times. There's a maturity there, but there's not a maturity in the academic field because they've been kind of in that stream pushed along. If you flunked, uh, I've had one kid first day of class who says, I've... I got seven Fs last year. And I go, so what are you doing here? He goes, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, no. And so I'm like saying, there's nothing in him that says, you know, I got to get that, you know, that great, I got to get that concept. I got to get that math down so that I can move on. 
And so a lot of teachers do that. If they see that the, the kid, if they're flunking in their class, they look at the other grades because the computers are up now and you can see what the kid is doing. And then you kind of think, oh, they, that, that kid flunks. Well, if math is the only one they're flunking, then you kind of go to guidance and go, what's going on in the math world? And so we're trying to fit the kid into a system instead of saying, you know, this is standard based and, you know, I'm going to be here until like seven o'clock tonight going over this material with the kid and we can get it out and we can do it. And there's no grit in the child or the student in order to push them through what needs to be done because education is vital in a free society. But I don't feel that from most of the students that I teach. Oh, okay. Well, I want to thank both of you guys just for coming because I know this is, you know, when you say education and then you try to fit it into, you know, roughly an hour, it's, you know, very impossible. But, you know, I guess just to kind of wrap this up, what I would like to do is going to ask you guys three questions and give an answer to these. What could someone listening to this podcast today, after all the stuff they've heard, one thing to the, each one of these questions that they can take so that they can answer these questions. So the questions are going to be, what do teachers need? What do students need? And what do parents need to understand? And so, so Lauren, I'll start with you. One thing for what teachers need, what students need, and what do parents need to understand about the public school system that they can go and do tomorrow to kind of make the school system better, to maybe understand their teachers or what their students are going through a little bit better. So Lauren, what do teachers need? I would say teachers need, well, the word I would use is support. And that is going to have to come from a lot of places. I think teachers need more support from their administrators and Less micromanagement, but more support in being able to be creative in their teaching practice and willingness to be able to fail and make mistakes and be like, okay, that didn't work and let's try something else. But they also need support from, like Donald was mentioning, the guidance counselors and from parents especially. But I would also say from the community at large, we need to start bringing the whole community to be a part of the teaching and learning system because, yeah, it's amazing when you bring people from the community into the classroom, how much more the students engage and are motivated to understand things. So that's what I would say teachers need generally is support and some more funding would, you know, is, is always great for that too. <laughs> right. So what, what do you think that students need? I would echo what Donald has been saying, that students need grit and motivation. I would also add, I think students need less time on phones and computers and internet. I think they need to be outside interacting with their peers and doing things, you know, scraping their knees and all those kinds of things. I think they need to be able to be human. And that idea has changed a lot from the advent of the internet but yeah definitely some grit and some willingness to just go out there and try things so when a parent walks into a meeting with you what would you like that parent to understand i would absolutely love for the parent to understand that i want very much for their child to leave my classroom not only understanding math but to be a better human being at the end of it you know to be more responsible with not just classroom assignments, but, you know, with their expectations that they have at home or, you know, from their friends and that ultimately parents and teachers are on the same side and that we need to work together 
in order for their student to be successful. And that depending on what they're coming to, like they might need to be more involved. And I understand that that means sacrificing things, but that their child's education is like one of the most important things that they could give to them. So, yeah. So Donald, what would you say that teachers need? I just concur with Lauren. I'd say community. I would echo back to the early 50s or 60s when you had, say, Catholic schools with nuns, some of the best teachers ever, where they dedicated their life and gave their life to the church. But as teachers, that was their only function. They would wake up and they would do 24-hour teaching, but they were in community. I, I would say all nuns would have the same modus operandi as far as when kids came into that school. If you know, if you were speaking or chewing gum, you might get a ruler across the hand, you know, things of that nature. But the idea isn't the discipline part of it. The idea is that they all had this kind of same community that they came into and that they espoused and education could flourish because they focused on it 24-7. I'd also say, you know, in the 60s, definitely some of the jobs that women could get could only be teaching. I mean, some of the doctors today, they were, the glass ceiling was, the teaching was probably the only job that a woman could get. And some of those are the writings that I went to school with that taught me what education was about. So it goes to show that, you know, we we now have a society where it's difficult to be a teacher. I mean, it's the only profession that I know that you need to have two jobs, that the pay doesn't kind of concur with the level that you need and the intensity that you need to bring You know, you just have to kind of show up, summer's off kind of thing, and it's not really a way to present a community where you come in and all the teachers are on board. And it's probably the best thing that I know that at the end of the year, most of the kids that come through our school will say that they feel the love of the teachers. That is just an amazing compliment, more so than the fact that they could probably, you know, pass the standardized test. And my book, because I want to just affirm the love that the parents have, and that's what Lauren was speaking to. That's the first thing I want when I meet with a parent is that the success of your child is the most important thing. And I'm here just for the education part. It might be just a narrow part of the whole part of the student's life, but it is a very important part. And I think we can do it together and I can affirm the love that you have for your child. And I think that really feeds into the expectation of success. So there's a lot that I think that can happen, you know, obviously I'd love more money for teachers and all that. But again, finding the right community and then the community outreaches to another, the business, work sector, higher education, plumbing, all that small business-minded people that have a degree of critical thinking that can help them set up, you know, if you're good with plumbing, you still have to do the accounting and the billing. You also have to set up a schedule. You also have to hire people and pay them. So there's so much to education that would help just in that area and also understand, you know, Democrat versus Republican and local politics and being involved. So I'm hearing from both of you that community and support for teachers is definitely the thing that teachers need. So, Donald, what do you think that students need? To be challenged, to be respected. I can't tell you how difficult it was March 13th of 2020 when they told us that we couldn't come back to the school. And, you know, I spent a good eight months with these kids and, I don't know, finishing meant a lot more to me than I realized. And then we would just get on the remote 
learning and expectations just drop. Just kind of show up, do what you can. And I realized that our relationship was very, very important. Students need that relationship, but I also think they need to realize what that relationship is and, and what it can bring. So students need to be counted, to be recognized, to understand their gifts or lack thereof are so important to their future. And I think it gives it more of a family touch, more of a philos, doggy, which is kind of like a parent brotherly love that furthers them finding out who they are. They're going through a very precocious time in their identity, again, which I think really needs a God foundation. So it's so important for students to understand that I want them to succeed at all levels, not just math. Yeah, no, I think that's very enlightening for those of us who aren't teachers. I think that's not something that is said very often. I feel a lot of times there's school and then there's the parents and they haven't gotten together like you were saying earlier. So when they do get together, when a parent walks in and has a meeting with you, what do you think that parent needs to understand? That the material is not as important as your child and that if there is a problem that we work on it together, that's foundational. I can't go in there and say, you know, they can't do rational expressions or they can't do triangle proofs or, you know, that they can't understand binomial distribution and say to the parent, well, the kid is failing here. I'd rather go in and talk about how do they learn? What are their interests? What kind of time can we present? You know, a lot of them in my school have work issues because the family is not together. So there's a lot of pressures that go on and I try to make the student the focus instead of the material. And I want the parent to understand that. But I think when they come into school, they see me as the problem (laughs) or they see me as a, this is going to be difficult. And there's been a lot of emotional issues lately. I've had a lot of kids that have to leave my classroom. They just tear up and have to see a guidance counselor. So there's a lot of emotional, not just material or concept wise, but there's a lot of emotional issues that kids deal with. And we have to be uh, adjust to that also. So a lot of times I come in and the parents will talk to me about the frailty or the whatever the student is going through and they feel like I need to understand that and I feel at in that discussion that I'm something that has to be overcome instead of worked with and I try to break down that wall right away and I think if the parent knows that I have the best interest of the child at heart then I think there's a lot of success not only in the classroom but just in communication and working and having the kid understand that you can do better. Well I want to thank both of you guys for joining us today. I think a lot of this is stuff that people aren't talking about. I think most of the time you just, people are, they have a position on unions, they have a position on teachers, they have a position on education, and that's it. And it's only political. And, you know, the politics does affect what you guys have to do to teach these kids. The culture, as Lauren was saying, that's very important in the results that these kids get, whether they're going to college, whether they're going to a trade school, or maybe they're doing an apprenticeship. So I I want to thank both of you guys for coming on today. Thank you guys very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And would love to have you guys back sometime in the future. Maybe, you know, go over something a little bit more specifically. But I think you guys gave a great overview of what teachers and education is in America today. So once again, thank you guys very much. Thanks for listening. And if you have a comment, question, or rant, we'd love to hear it. Email us at bluestateconversations at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find our articles on Medium. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. 
No matter what state you're in, blue, red, or purple, there is always room at the table to discuss your views in a way that lets us all grow. 